Hello, and welcome to the Mystery of the Ragged Stranger podcast. My name is Michael Hendricks, and I will be your host. This podcast aims to take a deep look at one of Chicago's most famous crimes, a case of murder from 1920 that centered around the Ragged Stranger and Carl Wanderer. This episode is the fifth of an eight-part series, available for download or to stream on the Ragged Stranger blog at chicagonow.com. On the blog, there's an easy email subscription sign-up if you'd like to have this podcast emailed to you upon each new episode being aired. The first few weeks after the murder of Ruth Wanderer saw a flurry of identifications of the man originally believed to have killed her. The press had taken to calling him the Ragged Stranger, and while the identifications of John Maloney and Al Watson garnered the majority of the headlines from this time, there were several others that came and went and merited no more than a couple sentences in the papers. And then there's one that, to me, still holds up to scrutiny as much as possible today. Leaving no stone unturned, the police went from tracking down concrete leads to dealing with questionable identifications to finally listening to prayers and pleadings from distant locales. While some of the identifications I'm going to tell you about were certainly not the ragged stranger, one or two of them may have been, and they may not be mutually exclusive of one another. William Noth or North The frustration of devoting time and resources ran high listening to tales like the following of William Noth or North. The newspaper's reporting of the fact that the ragged stranger had a commissary ticket from the John Robinson Circus led to many circus folk coming forward saying, he looks familiar, but I can't remember his name. There were dozens of touring circus troops at this time offering work to transient men. It seemed nearly everyone in a circus knew someone who fit the generic description of the ragged stranger. Average height, average build, reddish hair, and in his early 20s. E.H. Pryor, a former circus worker, was one of those men. I'm not sure, but I think this was Bill Noth, whom I knew eight or nine years ago. Bill was just a kid then. He had run away from his home to join a circus, Gentry Brothers. I believe his home was in Columbus, Ohio. He worked the commissary department, did odd jobs, made himself useful. Everybody liked him. I heard he went to another circus later. Bill would be about the age this man was, and about his build. Bill didn't have any freckles, though, but of course, freckles come easily. Yes, it, it looks like Bill, enough like him, I'd say, to be his brother. Looks like him enough to be his brother. It's a strong identification. The newspaper story first written about Mr. Noth would be carried over the newswire services and spelled his name N-O-E-T-H. Several other papers would later have a spelling of his name as Mr. North. The Chicago detectives found that there were no matching North or North families in Columbus, Ohio, and the police there did not have any missing persons reports that matched the description of the ragged stranger. Searching census records, there were dozens of William Norths and a few William Noths that were born, give or take, five years of 1900. None seemed to have any connection to Columbus or Ohio at all for that matter, and nearly all around that time seemed to have lived a longer life than the William Noth or North that Mr. Pryor thought he knew. William Noth or North was not the ragged stranger. But Bill North's brother, if he had one, could have been the ragged stranger. Snuffy. There was a police sergeant in another district that believed he could identify the ragged stranger as a former army man who went by the name Snuffy and who used to frequent taverns up and down Western and Oakley Avenues. The police investigation into Snuffy would later find that he was not the ragged stranger. Harry McDonald Chief of Police, Chicago Hold body of man killed by wanderer Will arrive in morning to identify John McDonald A telegram had come over the wire to Police Chief Garrity on a busy day. He had detectives closing in on a wanderer confession. Other detectives were contacting Indiana and Ohio authorities on William Noth or Norse behalf and still others were following leads regarding Al Watson, and the police were nearly finished disproving the ID of John Maloney. Hopefully, the telegram wasn't another wild goose chase. It was. 
Mr. McDonald showed up to the morgue at the undertaker's, just as the ad hoc coroner's inquest was preparing to begin. He entered the funeral home, and soon, after gazing at the corpse, he realized his nephew, Harry McDonald, missing from St. Louis since the 9th of June, was not the ragged stranger. James Kendrick James Kendrick had a mother that loved him and missed him. It had been two years that he'd been gone, but the lonely woman had read in a Pennsylvania newspaper of the ragged stranger. Maybe it was her Jimmy, she thought. She went to her local police station and asked if they could assist her. After contacting Chicago police, photos were mailed to the police in Scranton. Upon reviewing a photo of the ragged stranger, no further inquiries were made. James Kendrick, despite his mother's longings, was not the ragged stranger. Thomas Collins The Philadelphia police bet on the even longer of long shots. They contacted Chief Garrity's staff and asked for a photo of the still unidentified corpse. They believed the ragged stranger fit the description of a missing person report of theirs, a person missing since 1912. Upon receiving the photo from the Chicago police, the case remained open for the Philly police, as Thomas J. Collins was not the ragged stranger. Unnamed former boys' home resident While many tried to force a name to the body, others tried in vain to pull a name from the body. Father J.C. Queel of the working boys' home at Jackson and Racine swore he knew the body but could not recall the name. I studied the young man's face for a long time. It is familiar. I've seen it before, but I cannot place it. I've racked my memory, but just can't seem to catalog it. I was so sure that I'd seen it before, that it was the face of someone who had been at the home at some time in the past, that I returned to the home and took some of the boys there to see it. All of the boys recognized him as a former resident of the home, but not one of them could recall his name. The familiar-looking but unnamed former boys' home resident may have been the ragged stranger. Unnamed Sideshow Worker A husband and wife, proprietors of a carnival attraction, the 20-in-1 Sideshow, visited the morgue. Mr. Frederick Munster viewed the body and said it looked like a former employee of his. I recognize the long, flowing red hair and the fair complexion, as well as the clothes. They are like in build and in height. He had fired the employee in early June, but could not remember his name and had nothing else to offer the police. The unnamed sideshow worker for the 20-in-1 sideshow may have been the ragged stranger. Red Murphy Unlike some of the others, at least Mrs. Gertrude Davis was able to put a name to the face that stared back at her at the morgue. Red Murphy was who the body was, she told the police. He had done some custodial work for her in the past at a rooming house at Rush Street in East Austin, better known today as Hubbard Street. He was a vagabond who worked at docks when he could, she said. A local saloon keeper on East Austin, Patrick McCahill, was also asked to come to the morgue for a viewing, as Red Murphy was well known to him. No mention of Red Murphy, a dock worker in Chicago, was ever again tied to the case. He was not the only Red Murphy mentioned in relation to the Wanderer case, however. Wanderer's time in the Joliet Penitentiary nearly overlapped with the convicted murderer by the name of Red Murphy. On August 12, 1920, near Pekin, Illinois, James Edward Red Murphy murdered Harry Calkins, an acquaintance of Murphy's, after a deal to buy whiskey went south. Calkins had his skull crushed, his throat slit ear to ear, his abdomen slashed open, and was stabbed 18 times. Murphy began serving his life sentence in the Joliet State Penitentiary in June 1921. Red Murphy, frequent saloon patron and dock-working vagabond, was not the same bootlegging Red Murphy that served time in Joliet, nor was there ever any further connection of any Red Murphy to the case, likely meaning Red Murphy was not the ragged stranger. John Barrett Friday, October 29, 1920, the day after Wanderer was given his 25-year prison sentence, the police received another lead on a name for the ragged stranger. Upon visiting the morgue, a man named Herbert Potter was said to have unhesitatingly identified the dead man. That's him, 
His name is John Barrett. He's an ex-Canadian soldier. I knew him slightly, but don't know just where he came from. I met him one day on Madison Street. He told me he was broke and needed money for a meal. I had a few dollars laid away, and I loaned them to him. I took these checks as security. I never saw him again. A Canuck himself, Potter had visited the police station to tell them he knew the ragged stranger and confirmed some minor details of the deceased's description. Yes, I remember such a man. I loaned him $15, about $180 in 2018 money, last February on a couple of baggage checks he had. Barrett stayed at the old Ironsides Hotel, I think. I remember him particularly because of a protruding tooth in the front of his mouth. I never claimed the baggage. I guess it's either at the old Ironsides or else it's at the depot. Let's go over there. The police had their first solid lead in months on the identity of the unknown victim. They took Potter over to 651 West Madison to the Ironsides Hotel. The night clerk could not remember Barrett, but was willing to check the register and the baggage check. After taking the receipts from Potter, he searched for the bags to no avail. Barrett's bags were gone. The front desk register offered a bit more tantalizing information for the police. Barrett had checked into the flophouse in February and had dutifully signed his name every day since. Every day after June 21st, that is, the day after the murder, was the first day devoid of a signature on the register. Could this be the big break the police were looking for? Could they finally have put a name to the face that so many had looked at and thought they knew? Potter, for one, sure seemed to think so. Positive? Of course I'm positive. Do you think I'd loan money to a man and not know him again? Say, I'm not that easy. I'd know him in hell. Others that knew Barrett at the Ironsides Hotel claimed that he was from Vancouver, but was much older and in no way physically resembled the ragged stranger. The Canadian Armed Services informed the Chicago police that there was indeed an ex-Canadian soldier from Vancouver named John Barrett, but he was 50 years old while the unknown body in the morgue was in his early 20s. John Barrett was not the ragged stranger. Earl Kesey The February 2nd Tribune reported in an extra edition that the poor boob, known as the ragged stranger, now had a name. Although the identification is not yet official, three women who viewed the body of the poor boob declared that it to be of Kesey, a former soldier, carnival wrestler, and freight handler who sometimes went by the name Edward Morgan. Three women declared the body to be that of the missing Kesey. I'm sure that is Earl, exclaimed Mrs. Eipendorn when she saw the body. He visited us in Danville after he got out of the army and later left to work in Rockford. That was almost a year ago. He was a sergeant in the army, but was refused permission to go overseas because of his broken left ankle. If I could see the left foot, I would be sure. The police took Mrs. Eipendorn to the morgue to see what they hoped was the body of her nephew, Earl Kesey. Both of Earl's parents had died when he was younger, and he had spent some time living with his Aunt Cora in Danville, Illinois. Mrs. Eipendorn told the police that Earl had wrestled in carnivals under the name Edward Morgan before he was drafted. He had previously tried to enlist, but had been denied due to having a childhood ankle injury that hadn't healed properly. It was his bad ankle that was the clue to everything for Mrs. Eipendorn and the police. As they viewed the body, the police, Mrs. Eipendorn, Miss Beeth, and Miss Campbell all saw a noticeable growth on the left ankle. Strengthening the ID, Miss Beeth remarked on the clothes. Earl was at my house for the last time on March 20th, 1920. I remember the clothes he was wearing at the time. He had on these same gray trousers and this blue coat. In addition to the three ladies identifying the body as Kesey, a man named John Winterberg contributed to the identification. He said a man he had wrestled in Pullman in 1916 fit the description of the ragged stranger. He couldn't remember exactly, but was pretty sure his name was Morgan. The police thought they had their man identified. Hey, Kesey, you're dead! Someone shouted when the alive and breathing Earl Kesey walked into a Rockford, Illinois soda parlor the day after his two aunts picked him out in the morgue. Kesey told his story to a Rockford newsman. I didn't know anything about this business until today. I just arrived in Rockford Tuesday night and went right to bed. 
This afternoon, I dropped into a soft drink parlor where I'm well known. When I walked into the place, all the fellows began hollering, Hey, Keezy, you're dead. I got pretty sore, and then one of the proprietors showed me a morning paper. Say, you could have knocked me over with a feather. That aunt of mine is all wrong about my bum foot. She said I had a deformed left foot. That's the wrong one. It's the right one. I'm going to go right up there and set those people in Chicago straight. Earl Kesey himself stated that he was not the ragged stranger. Joseph Ahrens Every once in a while, the police lucked out, depending on your point of view, and the identification unraveled right before their eyes. Such was the case with Joseph Ahrens. Identified as the ragged stranger by his mother, Mrs. Sophie Lips, her identification was immediately called into question by her friend and neighbor, Mrs. F.W. Koopman. While at the county morgue in the criminal courts building, her neighbor, Mrs. Koopman, would have none of Mrs. Lips' identification. This woman has bobbed up and claimed the body of that man just to collect insurance carried by her own son who was run away from home. Mrs. Lips denied the charges. Untrue. He is my boy. I know it. And anyway, the insurance is only $250, about three grand in today's money. How could you know my boy as well as I? I know him by his teeth and the vaccination mark on his left arm. His face does not look just like the face of my boy, but, but I know him. Mrs. Koopman, in an effort to shine a light on the matter, told the assembled officials, She drove her own boy away from home anyway. He used to run errands for me, and the body that lies out there is not that of Joseph Ahrens, her son. The two women squared off, hurling insults at one another, until Assistant State's Attorney Milton Smith, who was witness to the identification, could step between the two women like a referee separating two pugilists. Break away! Time! The attorney pleaded. Mr. Smith turned to what he hoped would be an impartial judge of the situation, Mrs. Helen Wolschlinger, daughter of Mrs. Lips. Would you say that body is that of your brother, he asked her. I believe it is, but I don't want to have anything to do with my mother. The features of the body resemble my brother's, and my brother left home about the time of the murder. Sensing the room turning against her, Mrs. Lips made a prudent statement. All right, I'll go now and won't claim the body anymore. I don't want any trouble. In the meantime, a stack of affidavits were signed, by a dozen men that swore that Joseph Ahrens was the man on a slab in the morgue. Mr. William Reinhardt avowed that he'd employed a young Ahrens over two years prior in a leather tannery and was able to identify him by his prominent teeth. Ahrens was also identified by Philip Lips, his stepfather and foreman of Gutman & Company leather manufacturers. Eleven other men, mostly tannery workers, swore as well that they were sure that the body before them was Joseph Ahrens. Promising as it was, like so many others, the identification would crumble in seconds when the very alive and very well Joseph Ahrens returned to Chicago. He resembles me remarkably, and I can understand how the mistake occurred. There is a resemblance in the eyes and hair. I'm going to buy the poor fellow a wreath. I hope they identify him. The police had to be at the end of their rope. Twelve upstanding members of society, with no financial gains to be gotten or anything to benefit from, went to the morgue, looked at a body, and swore that body was out of a co-worker. Then, a day later, the man they swore they knew and saw dead before them walked through the door. Like Earl Kesey before him, Joseph Ahrens declared that he was not the ragged stranger lying in the morgue. As the trial for the murder of the ragged stranger approached, the police still had not been able to pin a name on him. Not wanting to delay the trial, the state's attorney, Robert Crow, prepared for Chicago and Cook County's first prosecution of a John Doe murder victim. To the prosecutors, they didn't need a name. They had a body, a motive, and a confession. That was all they needed. The state's attorney announced, Wanderer will be tried for the murder of John Doe, pending establishment, beyond doubt, of the victim's identity. If the identification becomes a matter of official record before the trial starts, or at any time during its progress, the court simply will be asked to permit the insertion of the real name of the victim into the indictment. 
Hundreds of people had gazed upon the lifeless body in the morgue and hung over a dozen different names on the unidentified man, all to no avail. All that was left was a disposal of John Doe into an anonymous mass grave in Potter's Field. Before that could happen, a benefactor to the downtrodden sought to provide some dignity to the ragged stranger. I have been in the saloon business for years in a neighborhood where there are hundreds of homeless men, ragged strangers, just like this one. I know these men better than most. To most people, they are just plain bums. To me, they are human beings who have simply been unfortunate. Saloon keeper Barney Clamage had either a soft spot for the disadvantaged or flair for marketing. Clamage contacted the powers to be and requested permission to give the ragged stranger a proper burial. Permits were filled out, and $250 later, nearly $3,000 today, an undertaker had been hired to get the ragged stranger a casket, cemetery plot, headstone, proper clothes, flowers, and carriages should there be any mourners for the anonymous young man. Pictures of Clamage getting the burial permit were in all the newspapers, and talk about town was of what a philanthropist he was. The funeral service would be held at a chapel a few blocks away from a saloon on South Halstead. Judge Joseph David, a somewhat eccentric figure, and the presiding judge of the Ragged Stranger murder trial, will be delved into deeper in our next episode, which will cover that trial. But as it concerns our story today, he made an appearance after the trial was over and did not disappoint. The undertaker, retained by Clamage, entered Judge David's court and suggested that the judge officiate the funeral and offer a eulogy for the poor, ragged stranger. The judge did not go for the idea. What are you trying to do? Make a sideshow out of this court? I've never heard of such barefaced effrontery. The idea of asking the judge who presided in the case to officiate at the funeral of the victim? Get out of my court and don't come back. Saturday, March 26th, was unusually warm, with temperatures reaching above 70 degrees. Whether a devotion to not letting a youth go into the ground alone, or for a sense of closure, the early spring day brought out crowds and droves to mourn the man everyone, yet no one, knew. After Judge David had emphatically denied wanting a role in the funeral, Reverend Wilson Donaldson from the chapel in nearby Cook County Hospital performed the funeral service and offered a eulogy. In the chapel of James Bradley and Sons Undertakers on West Harrison, the Reverend preached to a crowd who appeared to all have someone or something they were missing. Reporters jostled for a story, mourners commiserated with mourners over missing relatives, and the curious were just there to take it all in and see how it ended for the man whose identity had puzzled the city for nearly nine months. An overall sense of relief was shared by the assembled that Potter's Field would not be the last memory of the ragged stranger. Those that did manage to get a seat in a carriage headed west to Glen Oak Cemetery in Hillside. The Chicago Daily Tribune reported that a headstone was planned to be added later with the inscription, The Ragged Stranger, born unknown, died June 21, 1920. When originally paying for the burial permit, Klamich had looked upon the ragged stranger and said, He was a kind young fellow too, wasn't he? The same could be said of Mr. Klamage at this point, as he was most likely younger than the kind young fellow staring back at him from a slab in the morgue. Klamage's father was an English Jew who had found success owning saloons on the city's near west side. His mother was a Russian, and the bilingual Barney was taught at an early age the importance of hard work. All of the Klamage boys worked in the family taverns and pool halls before they were 15. Barney was a young buck of 19 when he took the initiative to pay for the ragged stranger's burial. His business sense must have been rather keen to amass near $3,000 in today's money at such a young age and spend it so altruistically. Or, again, he had an eye to the future and a knack for self-promotion. His knack for self-promotion might have been born of a strong sense of self-preservation as well. It might have been a motivating factor for Mr. Klamage to leave the retail booze business and get into the wholesale side, he opened a saloon door one night to something that would change his life. Past one o'clock in the morning in August 1928, someone started pounding on his locked tavern door. Clamage arose and opened the door to Edward Divis, 
or Davis, or Debits, as his name was also reported, a known petty criminal in the area. Before much could be said, three more men rushed up to Divis and pushed him and Clamage into Clamage's village inn at 736 South Polina. Guns were drawn and fired, and Divis collapsed with mortal gunshot wounds to his head and torso. Exactly what was said after this is not known. What is known is that the three gunmen left, Clamage locked the doors, went back to bed, and did not call police to report the murder until after 7.30 the next morning. No arrests were ever made. The following day's newspaper referenced a lover's triangle between the married Divis, his mistress, Mildred Molinani, who apparently was lonely due to her dope-peddling husband being in and out of jail, and Dominic Caruso, the aforementioned dope-peddling husband. One day, after being released from jail, Mr. Caruso visited Miss Molinani shortly after Mr. Divis had called on her, and being aghast that she would cheat on him, he vowed to kill Divis, crying out, I'll get Mooney, and together we'll get that rat, Divis. Grandiose threats are often made in the heat of the moment, but most people don't have a friend or resource at their side like Caruso did. He had Mooney, or, as most people would later know him, Sam the Cigar. Barney Clamage had opened his tavern door that night and witnessed future Chicago mob boss Sam Giancana committing one of his earliest murders. Whatever was said that night between Giancana and Clamage led to the Divis murder going down as a cold case and Clamage sleeping in his own bed. Police asked questions and investigated, and Divis's old cohorts avenged him by twice bombing the Taylor Street Italian ice factory owned by Sam Giancana's father but the murder would never be solved. As for Clamage, shortly after this event, he got into the wholesale booze business. Clamage would go on to be a successful entrepreneur, with the booze business later leading to financing automobile loans, another endeavor that provided quite a fortune for Mr. Clamage, though he died young, single, and without children. His friends remembered his generosity with Westside Charities and the disadvantaged of all walks of life. Whatever his motivations, he was the sole voice for the ragged stranger and provided in death a moment of dignity. Eddie Ryan Had Barney Clamage not saved the ragged stranger from being buried as a John Doe, his story might have ended when the last shovel of dirt landed upon his grave. But of course, the story didn't end there. In early August, Five months after the ragged stranger had been buried, a young woman in her early 20s called the police and stated that the unnamed boy was her brother, Edward Joseph Ryan. The police, and requisite reporters in tow, went to interview Miss Marie Benison of 201 Whipple Avenue to get her story. Her mother, Nellie Ryan, was at the house and did most of the talking and confirmed Marie's story to the police. It was indeed her long-lost Eddie. I read in the paper long ago about the homeless boy that had been killed by Wanderer and many of the prayers I said for him. I was down in St. Mary's on last Holy Thursday, and I said a prayer for him and for my own poor homeless boy, and I burned some candles for both of them. Then I determined to go to the morgue and look at the boy who had been killed and whose body had lain there so long without a woman to weep over it. I went, and it was Eddie. I hadn't seen him in 18 years since he was a little boy. 18 long years that was, filled with thinking of him and praying for him and trying to find him. But I knew at once, he looked so much like Marie, so much like myself. I didn't tell anybody, for one of the men there had said lots of folks had identified the body just for the insurance. I didn't want anybody to think that of me. And another thing, I had no place to bring him. My poor Ed, I have no home. Wherever I work is home to me. I have no money. I could not bury him. While equally adamant identifications had been made, many, many lesser ones had been as well. The police needed to get more details. She claimed to have visited the morgue and viewed the body three times before it had been buried. She renounced any insurance or reward money of any sort. My husband died when Eddie was six years old. 
There were six children, and it broke my heart, but I couldn't support them. Sure, I wept like it was a funeral when I said goodbye to the curly-haired darling 18 years ago. He went to a farmer named Leander Anglin in Redfield, South Dakota. The other boys went other places. Tom was killed on a railroad in Colorado. Will is in Freeport, Illinois. Frank in St. Louis. The girls I kept with me, despite everything. The Ryan family had lived on a farm about 150 miles southwest of Chicago, near Bloomington, Illinois. Ryan was quite a common surname in a state that had a large Irish contingent, and there were no records found that show Mr. Ryan died in or around 1903 with family that he was said to have had. Many migrant workers would not have made the obituary pages, however, so we have nothing to go on for the father. As far as Eddie's siblings, the story does check out for the most part. On August 6, 1908, Thomas Ryan was the engineer of a train from Colorado Springs, Colorado, to Santa Fe, New Mexico. A short time after leaving the tiny town of Trinidad and traversing the dry canyon south of there, the train passed through a few cloudbursts that left flash floodwaters pouring down all sides of the canyons. Coming around a bend, Ryan and his fireman, Thomas French, had no idea that the trellis they were about to pass over had been washed out by the storm. The engine collapsed a bridge below it, and the whole mess derailed into the normally dry arroyo. Unfortunately, Ryan and French survived the initial crash, but were pinned among the wreckage of the track and train. From Ryan's vantage point, he spent three hours drifting in and out of consciousness as he watched the brutal death of Thomas French. Pinned closer to the engine than Ryan was, the boiling water of the steam engine that he had been stoking moments earlier spewed out from the cracked locomotive. For hours he survived being cooked alive by steam and boiling water raining down upon him. Ryan was far enough away that he merely was dealing with near boiling water rather than steam. It would take hours before rescuers were able to reach them and free them from the twisted steel they were stuck in. French died within minutes of being pulled out. The trauma from being scalded had been too much, and the act of simply being moved caused him to expire. Ryan initially survived, but died shortly after reaching the hospital. Brother Will Ryan was tracked down by local reporters on a farm in Freeport, Illinois, about 100 miles west of Chicago. He had been working as a farmhand. It was said that Nellie and his sisters had visited throughout the years after their initial separation. Frank Ryan was said to be in St. Louis, Missouri, and while I found several Frank Ryans in St. Louis, none could be definitively tied to the rest of the family. Eldest daughter Agnes married in Chicago to a gentleman named Stockwell and worked at the Michael Reese Hospital. Youngest daughter and sibling closest in age to Eddie was Marie, who lived at 201 South Whipple with her husband, Mr. Benison. Little Eddie was six years old when his father passed away. Traumatic enough for anyone, but confusion must have clouded the lad's mind. His father was gone, and one by one, so were his other siblings. How many teary goodbyes did he go through? Before long, he was in the back of a covered wagon with people he didn't know, going to a land called South Dakota. Leander Anglin was 46 years old when he and his wife, Desdemona, 10 years his senior, took in six-year-old Eddie. Leander had been only 22 years old when he married the widow Desta, as she was known, and took her three children as his stepchildren. By all accounts, he was a fine man who had decided to leave their farm in Indiana and head north to stake a claim to wide-open prairie in South Dakota. He had family in Bloomington, Illinois, hence to stop there, but not known as the prior relationship, if any, to Nellie Ryan and her family. Leander and Desto's stepchildren were grown and gone by this time, so Eddie was a sole child as they headed out on the road in their wagon towards South Dakota. His new home in South Dakota was flat, with nary the slightest hint of a rolling hill here or there. The tall grass swayed with the wind, making wheat fields look like they were a golden ocean, ebbing and flowing. School and town were a short horse ride away. Drought came in 1909 and didn't let up until after 1911. Three years of dust in your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Dust in your clothes, bed, and on your person. The resultant dead crops led to hunger and poverty for many. 
Was it a coincidence that in 1912, not knowing if another summer of drought was approaching, Eddie, now a 15-year-old, left South Dakota to go see the world? I used to write to Eddie often. He stayed on the farm until he was about 15, and then he set out to see the world. I heard many a time he was in Chicago, but it's such a big city. I looked for him everywhere, but I never could find him. I got track of him now and then through letters he wrote back to Dakota, but we never saw each other again. The journey from the fields of South Dakota to the gritty streets of Chicago had to have been one paved with painful lessons. What events transpired over the next eight years to land him in rags talking to Carl Wanderer in a saloon drinking cheap whiskey? You could search all over the land and find no better than my Ed. Poor Ed. Think of him. Homeless. Motherless. Wandering down Madison Street. Maybe he was hungry. Certainly he was in rags. And Wanderer asked him to help him. Why shouldn't the poor boy agree? He couldn't have known there would be murder. My boy wouldn't murder. And so he died. God rest his soul. He's happy now, I know. And there was talk that a kind man was going to have him buried in Glen Oak Cemetery. I told my daughters, and all of us prayed for Barney Clamage, the kind man who buried my son. Ah, that man will always have the luck. A mother's prayers will always follow him. I was in the church when the minister preached the sermon that holy Saturday. It was I who cried out loud when he called poor Ed some woman's son. I wanted to get up and cry out that he was my son. But I didn't. I don't know why I didn't. I wanted to go out to the cemetery, but all the carriages were filled. There was no place for me, and I stood out on the sidewalk and cried as the last of the carriages disappeared down the street. We kept it a secret, the three of us. But oh, I am glad the secret is out. I've wanted to talk about my boy for so long. I've wanted to tell what a gentle child he was, how there wasn't a bit of harm in him at all. Car for the course had been shortly after an ardent identification was made. Someone would come in with an ardent denial of said identification. That didn't happen this time. For her part, Nellie Ryan never wavered that her dear son was indeed the unfortunate victim. In 1938, 17 years after having come forward and proclaimed the ragged stranger as her dear Eddie, she attended the funeral of Barney Clamage, the man who had paid for the burial of her son. She spoke of how she cherished the memories of his generosity in saving her son from Potter's Field and wanted to pay her respects. Her long-lost son, Eddie, had never reappeared in her life. Edward Joseph Ryan was the last person identified as the ragged stranger. Like nearly everything else in this case, nothing is black and white, though. Carl Wanderer, the one man who would be able to shed light on the ragged stranger's identity, offered his two cents when shown a photo of Eddie Ryan that his mother had given the reporters. He's not the man. I would know the face of that fellow who held up me and Ruth among a thousand. This picture doesn't look anything like him. Unlike Carl, I do believe Edward Joseph Ryan was the ragged stranger. Wanderer's lies have touched every part of the story. Why would he tell the truth about the identity of the ragged stranger? I would love to be sharing with you the bombshell information I uncovered in this case that unambiguously says, Mr. So-and-so was indeed the ragged stranger. But alas, I didn't find it. That realization hit me squarely as I was walking among the graves of Glen Oak Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. It was a beautiful summer afternoon. I had just been at the old Waldheim Jewish Cemetery where I had found Barney Clamage's grave to be adorned with a photo I had never seen of him before. It was on that high that I didn't heed the woman in the office at Glen Oak Cemetery, telling me that she couldn't find any record of a ragged stranger headstone having ever been recorded or paid for. With a map pointing me to the section where the ragged stranger's grave was supposed to be, I headed off, believing that in no time I would be back showing the woman in the office a picture of the headstone that I'd read about in a 1921 Chicago Daily Tribune article. I walked for hours covering miles as I paced back and forth through a grid-like pattern over the graves. The office staff had told me that the section that the ragged stranger was buried in would be easy to find as he was buried in the poor section, which meant that while he had a grave to himself, most graves in the section did not have headstones, as whomever paid for the burial typically could barely afford the private grave, and such a luxury as a stone was out of reach for most. In spite of that, 
I found dozens of stones in the area. Some had been knocked over, some were being swallowed by the earth, some had eroded so much that they could hardly be read. But none of them said, here lies the ragged stranger, or anything of the sort. I stood there, wiping sweat from my brow, looking up at a cloudless sky as the thought hit home. I wouldn't find the grave. With no grave, no exclamation, bear with me. Like I said, I was dreaming for a big bombshell. No exclamation, no DNA, no DNA, no incontrovertible identification. That said, the lack of a bombshell still lends a touch of romanticism to the story. The fact that a dozen or more names had been attached to this person without any of them sticking, I love it. To recap, in roughly chronological order, here is a brief bit on each person and why they could be, or are definitely not, the ragged stranger. Matson or Watson, newspaper delivery man theory. No one by that name was ever found to be missing. Edward Masters, the commissary man of the John Robinson Circus. Found alive and well and still in the employ of the circus. Also was the name of a known criminal that was also found to be alive. John J. Maloney. His family viewed a photo and said it was not him. Besides, Maloney was too old and too tall. Al Watson, the Canadian soldier, son of a wealthy turfman, as ID'd by woman known to stretch the truth while looking for attention. Alexander E. Watson, missing New Jersey man, was found to be too old and too short. William North, or North. It looks like Bill, enough like him, I'd say, to be his brother. Enough said. Harry McDonald, missing St. Louis man whose uncle viewed the body in the morgue after his hopeful telegram. He went home empty-handed with a nephew still missing. Snuffy, the local barfly was never given a name and his identification never went further than one mention in the newspaper. James Kendrick, missing from Scranton, PA since 1918. He was linked to the ragged stranger by a wishful mother hoping to find her son. The police never followed up. Thomas J. Collins, another wishful mother who had the Philly police try and make an identification. They never did. John Barrett, the Canadian Army said he was too old and too tall. Earl Kesey was found to be alive and well. Red Murphy, in a city full of Red Murphys, this was a weak ID that never went anywhere. The unnamed sideshow worker. Mr. and Mrs. Munster both recognized the flowing red hair, his complexion, and clothes, but were unable to pin a name on him. He could have been the ragged stranger, or Eddie Ryan, or both, or neither. The unnamed former boys' home resident. Despite Father Queel's efforts and his belief that he knew the ragged stranger as a youth, there was never a positive ID. Again, he could have been the ragged stranger, or Eddie Ryan, or both, or neither. Joseph Ahrens Visited the morgue himself to prove that he was still among the living. Edward Joseph Ryan ID'd by his mother, who hadn't seen him in 18 years. She later attended Barney Clamage's funeral 17 years after she believed Clamage buried her son. So, Al Watson, Bill North's brother, if he had one, a Red Murphy, a circus sideshow worker, a boys' home resident, and Eddie Ryan are the only ones that could possibly be the ragged stranger. These characters are also not necessarily mutually exclusive from one another. I suppose Catherine Vanos could have been telling the truth and her husband leaving her days after her idea of the ragged stranger was simply a coincidence. Though a wealthy racehorse-owning father never showed up looking for his son despite coast-to-coast -coast coverage of the story, Perhaps something happened to the wealthy turfman father in the same time frame as ill will fell on the ragged stranger. Despite these long-shot possibilities, after learning what I have of Mrs. Vanos, I doubt her credibility, and hence the Al Watson narrative. It looks like Bill, enough like him I'd say to be his brother. If William North or North had a brother, I couldn't find him. A brief mention of a Billy North in the circus newspaper Billboard and this weak ID are all we have to go off that there even might have been a Bill North or North. There obviously have been numerous references in the history of Chicago and beyond as far as Red Murphys are concerned, with Wanderer nearly doing prison time alongside a Red Murphy and Joliet. None makes sense as in relation to our story here. Could the unknown sideshow worker also have been the former boys' home resident? 
or Bill Norris brother or Eddie Ryan? I don't see why not, nor do I see any way we will ever be able to connect the dots between them. So that leaves Eddie Ryan. First off, there are a couple red flags that need to be addressed. First, his mother, Nellie Ryan, gave him up for adoption in 1903 when he was six years old and then didn't set eyes on him again, if we are to believe her, until she visited the morgue and saw his dead body on a slab nearly 18 years later. The fact that Eddie was a redhead makes this a little easier for me to see. Think about seeing before they were stars celebrity photos. Can you often pick them out? A comparison that I think helps easily illustrate this is Ron Howard. For you millennials, you might need to Google some of this to see what I'm talking about, but I encourage you to do so. Picture Ron Howard when he was playing the young child Opie on The Andy Griffith Show. Now picture a 20-something Ron Howard playing Richie Cunningham on Happy Days. Do you think if you were a mother of a six-year-old Opie, you would recognize him 18 years later as Richie Cunningham? I think I would. I certainly don't doubt that a mother would be able to pick out her own son after 18 or more years, particularly a ginger with flowing red hair. In light of not having anything solid to go off of, the best we are left with are presumptions to guide us. The fact that Nellie Ryan didn't come forward at first due to not being able to pay for a burial or funeral seems plausible to me. The fact that she never collected any insurance money or was paid for identification bolsters her story. Attending the funeral of Barney Clamage 17 years after he buried her son tells me that, at least in her heart, she believed that the ragged stranger was her son. And tied to that previous sentence, the fact that Eddie Ryan never materialized back in her life again strengthens her claim. I found several Ed, Eddie, and Edward Ryans that died in the years after the ragged stranger, but none traced back to Bloomington or Chicago, Illinois, or Redfield, South Dakota. So is Eddie Ryan the ragged stranger? And while I'd like to think he was, I imagine we'll never know. Either way, Eddie Ryan or the ragged stranger, should he be someone else, lived a hard life in a short time before fate introduced him to Carl Wanderer and brought him into that vestibule that night. I'd like to hope those hard times hadn't forced him into prior robberies or other nefarious deeds, and he simply wanted an honest job and met Carl Wanderer, one of the most dishonest men the ragged stranger would ever meet. Whatever led him to be clad in rags, whether traumatic horrors in war, hard times, or vice, he died a stranger, a final indignation leaving this world anonymously. A follow-up to this story is currently being researched and written and will tell how Eddie Ryan was given up for adoption at the age of six after the death of his father and then went to live on a farm in South Dakota until the age of 15 when he left to go see the world as he wrote in a letter to his mother. How fate led his journey from the dusty plains of South Dakota to his death in a tiny vestibule in Chicago, eight years later, will be told in Eddie Ryan, The Life of the Ragged Stranger. On the next, The Mystery of the Ragged Stranger, there will be no compromise verdict this time. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Edgar Ramos, Matt Schwerha, and everyone at Chicago Now for the help in producing this podcast. This series is made up of eight episodes, and our next episode will air... Monday, August 20th. We will release new episodes every other Monday through the end of September. We're going to leave you with a song called The Butcher's Boy by Buell Casey. This song is being heard courtesy of June Apple Recordings in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Enjoy. Me, my life away. 
around on the town Where that railroad boy goes and sits down He takes that strange girl on his knee And he tells to her what he won't tell me Father, he came in from work and said, Where's daughter? She seems so hurt. He went upstairs to give her hope, but found her hanging on a rope. He took his Oh, uh-huh.